Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Ryan Schreckengast. As Jeff mentioned, there's a bit of disconnect with your outline today, so that will be just a test of how clearly I've laid out the points and how well you listen and take notes. So it's a pop quiz today. So when I was in college, I went through a phase that I think many young men go through. Uh, this was a phase of obsession with kung fu and samurai movies. Uh, and one of my absolute favorites was about a wandering samurai who would defend the helpless and would take on entire gangs of opponents single-handedly. And throughout the entire movie, you never saw the samurai's face because he had a very wide brim on his hat and he always had his head tilted down. Until the very last scene in the movie, when he lifts his head up for the very first time, and you see that he has a cloth covering his eyes because he was blind. And that scene changed the entire purpose of the movie. The entire perspective changed. All of his accomplishments, which were still amazing, became even more spectacular. And the glory of an awesome samurai was completely eclipsed by the glory of an awesome blind samurai. And then there was the sequel. <laughs> this movie was even more spectacular, higher stakes, bigger enemies. And in the last scene of this movie, you see the samurai's face again. And now he takes off his cloth and he's not actually blind, but he chose to wear this cloth through all of the previous events because nothing up until that point had even been a challenge. And he wanted to make things interesting. The glory of a blind samurai was eclipsed by the glory of a samurai who wasn't blind but chose to blind himself because he wanted a challenge. Now, is there anything more glorious than that? <laughs> I wonder. How about being loved by the creator of the universe who simply spoke and light burst from his mouth? How about being chosen by the one being who knows everything that you have ever done and chosen by the God who knew that you would time and again choose everything that he hates and still that God condemned his perfect son to suffer and die so that you could be with him? That, my friends, is more glorious than any earthly power could ever be. And that's what we're going to look at in today's text. And I hope that, friends, when you go home today, you will be completely overcome by the glory of our truly awesome God. Today we're going to be examining Isaiah 11.10 through 12.6. And we're at a major climax of the book. And if you remember the book map that's printed on your outlines, usually... Uh, you would remember that we are finish, finishing the first subsection of the first major division of Isaiah. And so far in these first chapters, we have seen God lay out his accusations against his people. He's pronounced his condemnation and outlined the judgment that will follow. But now at this climax, God is giving his people a hope of the future. That his anger will one day turn away. And in the sections that we read today, we'll see how God restores that which is broken. 
And we'll see three specific examples of this, and these would be your outline points, that God restores man's broken relationship with God, God restores man's broken relationship with man, and God restores broken justice for the oppressed. We'll also see that in doing all of these things that are so glorious, the only possible response that we can have is awe and thankfulness and praise. So read together with me Isaiah 11, 10 through 11, and we'll see how God restores the relationship with himself that his people broke through their rebellion. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands to the sea. And now this kind of language that we see in these verses is familiar throughout Isaiah. In particular, the phrases, God extended his hand, and in that day, are both repeated earlier in Isaiah. The first time that we see God use, or we see Isaiah use this word, God extended his hand, is uh, in Isaiah was in the condemnation of Judah's betrayal. Let's look back a minute here at Isaiah 5, 25 through 26. You can read that with me. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger was not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily they come. So there's a great contrast here between chapter 11 and chapter 5. In chapter 5, God extends his hand out in righteous judgment of his corrupt people. But compare that with chapter 11. The Lord will extend his hand out yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. Here his hand is extended out not in righteous judgment, but in righteous salvation. In chapter 5, he signaled for the nations to come from the ends of the earth to bring judgment on his people. But now, in verse 10 of these chapters where we are, God sends the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. And the people will come from the ends of the earth, but this time for redemption. And these two sections contrast the outcomes of what happens in that day, which is the other phrase that we've seen repeated. There are more references of this phrase in that day earlier in Isaiah. And the largest concentration was in chapter 7, where the Lord himself spoke to Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, and he warned of the coming judgment, which we learned in earlier weeks would be so overwhelming and all-encompassing and deeply, deeply personal that nothing had been seen like it for 300 years since God's people had divided into two nations, which are Judah 
and then Ephraim, also known as Israel. So what has made the difference between those two in that day from chapter 7 and in that day from chapter 11? What made the difference between what happened when God stretches out his hand in chapter 5 and when God stretches out his hand in chapter 11? Well, the difference was right at the very beginning of this chapter. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand for a signal for the peoples. The difference is that God's judgment has cleansed his people of their idolatry and their rebellion. And now the remnant are willing to accept the king that is sent by God, the root of Jesse. So we've seen in these first two verses how God used the judgment that he put on his people's rebellion to be able to restore their relationship with him. But that, my friends, is not the end. This is just the first revelation of the glory of God. And the glory keeps going. It wasn't for no reason that the last event in Judah's history that involved as much pain as God is promising now was when they were divided from the other tribes. That also happened because of their idolatry and rebellion. So let's read Isaiah 11, 12, and 13, and we'll see how God redeems the divisions even between his people. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. So for the first nine chapters of Isaiah, God's people, Judah, are condemned to suffer God's judgment and his anger. But they still have one hope that's remaining, that they cling to, that God will relent and a small portion of them will be preserved and remain. But little do they know that this hope is way too small for God's plan. Not only will God use his judgment to redeem his people unto them, but he will also redeem the other part of his people who had been divided from Judah for over 300 years. And they were at war with Judah at the time when this was given. Remember, Ephraim was another name for Israel and was the kingdom composed of the 10 other Israelite tribes that had split from Judah after the death of King Solomon. And there was a lot of bad blood between these two nations. Look back at Isaiah 7, 5 and 6. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So this was not just another nation. Ephraim was the name of former brothers of Judah. And it was the fear of this alliance between Ephraim and Syria that caused the king of Judah to look to Assyria for aid. That was a big mistake. Uh, Assyria would later betray Judah and be the first means of God's judgment. 
So in that context, consider again the glory that is implied in verses 12 and 13. Again, he will assemble the banished of Israel, the enemy, and the dispersed of Judah, who have been dispersed following God's judgment, from the four corners of the earth. And Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. So God's signal will not just restore the remnant of Judah, but he will restore them to the remnant of Israel, who at the moment this was written, all they wanted to do was to destroy Judah. The most Judah could realistically hope for was that some of them would survive God's judgment. But how much more glorious was God's plan? And little did they know that even as glorious as that plan was, God's plan was not finished and he was not satisfied. Another judgment, this time on a cross, would restore not just all of the Jews to the family of God, but even the Gentiles. An even greater enemy to God's people, who no one but the most glorious God could have even conceived of being restored unto him. Jesus Christ died, accepting on himself the judgment that was earned by all men, that we who were sinners and enemies of God could become his children and brethren, one of another and of Christ. And my friends, there is nothing more glorious than this. So church, this is where I want to talk about how we can apply these first four verses of Isaiah here directly to our lives. Church, there is nothing more glorious than the fact that we are standing here today. Sinful people who have been accepted into God's family and then made a part of his plan to redeem the world. Not just to be accepted, but then to be used by him to accomplish his glorious plan. The discipline of the Lord is a glorious thing. And God's discipline does not tear us down for no reason. It tears out the sin which is death in our lives, and it gives us back that which is life. So find someone who you respect and confess the sin in your life. Trust God to cleanse you and do not be afraid. As we'll see in chapter 12, he is your strength and your song and your salvation. Also an application church is please pray big. When it feels like the most that you can hope for is that a tiny, tiny shred of your life will survive, pray that God will do more than you could hope or imagine. God is able to do it, my friends. Pray for the restored family relationships. Pray for greater influence with your secular peers. Pray that the abortion laws in this country would change. And lastly, church, look with eager anticipation for the greater and greater and greater revelation of God's glory in your life. Maybe God will use your vulnerability about the struggles that you have in your marriage to strengthen someone else's marriage. Maybe God will use the time that you take to work through heart issues with your kids to show someone else 
exactly how much God loves them. I don't know what it'll be, but I assure you that it will be glorious. So we've seen how God has used the judgment on his people's rebellion to restore their broken relationship with him. We've seen how God's plan of judgment restores even the divisions within God's people. Surely that is enough glory for God. That alone is breathtaking. There can't possibly be any more. Well, there are more points on your outline, so you've probably guessed there's more. <laughs> so read with me Isaiah 11, 14 through 16. And notice how God will use his newly united people to bring justice to those with hard hearts and how he will set his people free. This is in reference to the unified nation that God has brought together. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the peoples of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead his people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Now, this section is a bit of a preview of what the future is going to look like in the coming chapters of Isaiah for the various nations which have been oppressing God's people. And we saw earlier that God had actually directly used these nations to accomplish his discipline on his people. But even so, being directly called by God and obeying God to come and bring that judgment, these nations refuse to recognize who God is. Their hearts were hard, just like their idols. They had eyes but could not see, ears but could not hear, and hands, but they were powerless before the living God. And so, just as God used the nations to discipline his people, he will now use his people to discipline the nations. And the language in this section pulls us back even further into Judah's past, when they were still united with Israel, but were slaves for generations in Egypt. God used his people then to bring judgment on the hard-hearted Pharaoh and ultimately freed his people from slavery. And now the promise of judgment that God is about to bring does the exact same thing. It upholds God's righteous judgment, which, by the way, is what God was condemning uh, Judah for failing to do, and it frees his people. This time, it's not a freedom from slavery in Egypt, but a freedom from slavery to the rebellion and the idolatry which his people had embraced among these other nations. So in the end, God restores his relationships to him. He restores our relationship with one another. And he restores the justice and the freedom which we failed to keep through our own willing idolatry, and rebellion. What a glorious God. 
And church, when we're faced with this kind of glory, what can we do? Well, we know what the seraphim do in Isaiah 6-2. They cover their faces, they cover their feet, and they call to one another saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And this brings us to the second point on the outline where we will look at Isaiah chapter 12 and see that we too can join in this same song of the seraphim. We too will praise God for what he's done even to the ends of the earth. Let's read Isaiah 12, 1 and 2 and see how it is right that we praise God for his glorious deeds. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. We see here an explosion of praise and gratitude for how the Lord has dealt with his people. And this is the song the people sing after this incredibly painful judgment. Here's the proof that God's people have changed. They view God's anger now as righteous because they are able to acknowledge their own guilt. They know his anger was righteous and justified, and so they're grateful for his salvation. His people now have this new understanding of the loving heart of God. Not just to relent in his righteous anger, but then to go a step further and comfort his people. This is like when a small child has a splinter. If that child is immature or lacks trust, they will scream and flail and refuse to let you remove that splinter. No, 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 it's going to hurt. But as the child matures and they grow in wisdom and they grow in trust, they recognize your heart to help them. And though you very well may cause them pain, by removing the splinter, the result is that they will thank you. With a tear in their eye, they will give you a grateful hug. My friends, we are this child. How often do we misunderstand the suffering that God brings us through? If I'm mature in my faith and trust in God, then like verse 2, I will be able to say, God is my salvation. I will trust. I will not be afraid, for the Lord is my strength and my song. So my friends, where do you turn for salvation when God brings you through suffering? Do you completely depend on the support and the love of others who are around you? Do you trust in your own strength and ability to make it through? And let's talk about strength. Is the Lord God your strength? Or is it your own mastery of your job at work or your ability to adapt and reason through difficult situations? For Judah, it was Assyria who was their strength that they would look to for their salvation. Lastly, what is your song? Our lives are always singing. 
We're either singing a song of our own glory or we're singing a song of God's glory. And as God matures us in him, we will see that he is the one who is worthy of being our song. So how do we apply these verses to our lives? Church, give thanks to the Lord. Thank him that his anger has turned away from you. Thank him that he's a God who is not okay with sin, that he absolutely demands death for that sin, but that the payment of that is it up to you. Every day, let him be your salvation and your strength and your song. And if he isn't those things for you here today, let him become those things. Nothing else saves, not money or influence or love from others or love for yourself. Nothing can be your salvation but Jesus Christ. And so we see that there's still one more response that we can have to God's glory. We know that we praise him for what he's done for us. But there are still those who do not know that. They do not yet recognize God's deeds in their life as glorious. But even though they don't know, who God is doesn't change. And we, my friends, have the opportunity to let them all know. Look at Isaiah 12, 3 through 6. It will read how praising God for who he is also spreads God's glory to the end of the earth. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. The church, salvation is not only a cup, but it is a deep, deep well. God was not satisfied with the restoration of Judah. He wasn't satisfied with the restoration of Israel. He wasn't satisfied with the restoration of a few Gentiles. He wasn't satisfied with your restoration. He wants everyone. That is not nearly enough glory for who God is. He will only be satisfied when all things are restored to him through his son, Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says this. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember that last, res that last revelation of glory from the samurai movies? That the samurai chose to work without his full power and so he showed his power to be even greater. Well, this is it, folks. God chooses to work through us. 
sinful, broken, former enemies of God. We have been redeemed and sanctified and commissioned as his sons and daughters. And now we get to carry this message. And in so doing, as the broken vessels that we are, we glorify God. Look at verse 5 again of today's passage. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. So this is our final response. Shout and sing for joy that all of God's glorious deeds may be known. The Holy One of Israel is great here in our midst. So the application here is simple. Sing the praises of the glorious deeds that God has done in your life. My friends, we did that just this morning. And we praised him for the new jobs. We praised him for our development and our growth. But we also praised him for the broken lawnmowers. And we praised him for the things that feel like difficulties. The glorious deeds of God don't always come from our success stories. So don't limit them to those things. Praise God for the lost jobs, the unfulfilled hopes, the failing health, the broken lawnmowers, the damaged relationships with family. Because God is a God who restores what is broken. And each of those things that he restores is a part of the never-ending song of the glory of God. Just like Judah, God is doing gloriously. He's transforming us into the image of his son. Do you realize how amazing it is that we can be here every Sunday and do exactly that every week? We come together here under this roof and we literally sing for joy making it known to all the earth that the Lord has done gloriously, for he is great in our midst. And church, it is glorious. And from the perspective of this earth, what we do here on Sundays may not be all that glorious. Three people singing and playing instruments, a group of us trying to sing, for my sake, out of tune. But from heaven's perspective, my friends, We are an army of God's restored children, singing the anthem of God's glory from the creation of time itself into the most intimate details of our everyday lives and on to the very instant when the last knee hits the floor in God's throne room, confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Glory. Glory. And in just a second, church, we will sing one more song. And I ask that you sing and you see not just with earthly eyes, but with eternal ones. So to conclude, Isaiah 11 and 12 is the pinnacle of this first section of the book. Isaiah's message from God of the coming judgment reaches an unexpected but an inevitable conclusion of salvation and praise for God's glory. 
We see how God used the judgment of his people's rebellion to restore their broken relationships with him. We see how God restores even the divisions between men, far exceeding the expectations of his people, even to the Gentiles through Christ. We see how God restores the justice that has been lost in his world. And ultimately, we see that because of all of this, God's glory is revealed. And he is worthy to be praised as holy, holy, holy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for who you are. That you show us, Lord, uh, through every moment in our lives. Through the time that we come here to be together. Through the time when you comfort us and you, and you secure for us victories in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the time when you are faithful to walk us through struggles and to not abandon us. God, we thank you for this church body that you've brought alongside us, that we can declare to one another your glory. Father God, you are holy, and we praise your name. May our lives be an ever-growing song to your glory. Amen.